Okay, I think we're ready. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the songbook of the Old Testament saint, which would be the book of Psalms. These were the songs that the Old Testament saints would sing. And it's not a small thing that this is the largest book of the Bible, the songbook. We don't have the music that they used, and so we may have different styles and music today, but we sing the same core truths that the saints have been singing to the Lord for thousands of years. And I'd like for you to look at Psalm 2 in a moment. We're going to begin there. Here's what we're doing. We've got five weeks from today to launch. And we've been talking about launch, launch, launch. And last night it got a little more uh, excited and detailed. So this is uh, it's no small thing when a church begins. We're making a, a commitment. We're like Peter. We're going to step out of the boat and we're trusting the Lord. Um, we, we're, we're trusting we're going to float. We're not going to sink. God is going to do it. And here's how we know that. The foundation of our church, our hope, is the promise of Jesus, Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church. Jesus said that. I will. No ifs, ands, or buts. And he doesn't need me or you or he doesn't need us. He'll use us, but he doesn't need us. I will build my church and the gates of hell, the enemy of God himself, shall not prevail against it. So we know, based on Matthew 16, 18, our church... Jesus' church is going to be built. That's the foundation. Now, what we're going to look at for these uh, five Sundays leading up to launch are what we could say are five pillars that are built on the foundation. Jesus is the foundation. We have five pillars. We're going to call them the five essentials of a healthy biblical church. Five elements that make a church a real biblical New Testament church. And they are, I've listed them in your notes. I'm not sure this will be the order Pastor Josh will cover them, but, but we will cover worship this morning. And then there's fellowship. That's the word community we use a lot. The connected, connectedness of brothers and sisters in Christ. There's evangelism, taking the gospel to every creature, telling them about Jesus. Discipleship, that is growing us in our walk with the Lord, that we follow him more closely, we become more like him as disciples. And then ministry. We use all of our gifts, our time, our resources, everything to serve Christ and others. So these are, these are the five essentials of a healthy biblical church. Remember when you go to the doctor for a checkup, and either the nurse before the doctor comes in or the doctor, one of the two, will will check certain components of your anatomy, right? Check your pulse. They'll uh, check your temperature. They'll pump up your arm and check the blood pressure. Um, maybe your respiratory rate. Maybe your blood oxygen level. You know, the, these components give them an indication of how you're doing. If one of those is off, if your fever is spiked, that, that's a, a red flag, a warning. And I can't tell the doctor, well, I might have a high fever. It might be 105, but my blood pressure is okay. And I'm, I'm breathing and maybe blood oxygen. We would not be satisfied if, if four out of the five were okay and one was wacko. So when we go through this series, we're not going to 
pick and choose, well, our church will be good at two or three or maybe four of these, and that's pretty good, four out of five. We've got to have all five. And we want, we're not going to be a perfect church, we know that from the beginning, but we want to be a faithful, consistent church in all five of these areas so that the good physician, when he checks us up, says that's a healthy church. They might be small and simple and just starting, but they're in good shape spiritually. So let's start out with probably the most important one, I'd say. And I think Pastor Josh would agree. We're going to start out with worship. What is worship? And you know, that's a, that's a big issue. There's hundreds of places in the scripture talking about worship, that concept, if not the very word. It's a hot-button issue. If you go to a Christian bookstore or you go on Amazon, you will find dozens of books with all sorts of ideas on contemporary worship, traditional worship, blended worship, uh, home worship, uh, new worship, old worship, all kinds of worship. And there are even worship wars in churches. Churches have split and have debated and fought over the styles of worship and the methods and how to worship. And there's a lot of areas we could cover, but I want to keep it simple this morning for us, friends. I'd like for us to just answer two questions. What is it? What is biblical worship? And how do we do that? How does God want us to do it? So I've asked you to start at, at Psalm 2. We're going to look at a verse of Scripture. But I think before we look at God's definition of worship, let me just throw out to you a few, and they're in your notes, of, uh, of man's efforts at defining worship. Let's go to the dictionary. We've got to always go to Mr. Webster's dictionary, and he's a, a good guy to define things. And he was a believer. Uh, Noah Webster actually was. And if you ever get his original dictionary, I think it was 1828, the definitions almost always have biblical references. Of course, that's been edited out through the years of more modern uh, revisions. But here's what Webster says about worship. To honor or show reverence for as a divine being or supernatural power. All right, that's pretty good. Here's a theologian. Uh, you may be familiar with J.I. Packer. If you're not familiar with his book, Knowing God, if you can ever get that, it's a classic. Just telling us all about the attributes of God and how practical they are for our lives. But here's what he says about worship. To serve him, that is God, exclusively, not only because they... He's talking about the Israelites, owed it to him, but also because he was worthy of their entire and exclusive trust. I've underlined the word worthy. We just saying that with Alexis repeating that and, and driving that into our heart. He's worthy. He's worthy. It's to bow to his absolute authority over them on the basis of confidence in his complete adequacy for them. If God is enough, and he is, if he's my everything, all in all, then he deserves my all, and I bow to him in adoration. That's worship. Good definition from Packer. Uh, here's a more contemporary author named Jim Burke who says, It is the creature taking his place of humility before his maker and praising him because of his worthiness. And there again is that concept. Worship, worship involves worthiness. Who is worth our praise? Who is worth our adoration? Who deserves it? 
who is so valuable that it's just the logical response to him? Well, there's only one, the worthy one. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Revelation chapter 5 is what we'll be singing in heaven. So that's why we're practicing up and doing it down here on earth. He is worthy. So thankfully, we have some nice uh, human efforts at defining worship, but, but let's let God define his worship, okay? Let's go to Psalm 211. If your Bibles are open there, this is a song about the future kingdom rule of the Messiah. And in preparation for that, verse 10, the psalmist says, let's be wise and let's be warned. If we know the king is going to rule on his holy mountain one day, then here's how we should respond now and get ready for him. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now I asked you ladies earlier if you had a different translation. The ESV says serve the Lord. Any other uh, translation that you have? Dina, what's King James say? Serve the Lord. It says serve the Lord. Alexis? Serve Serve the Lord. Okay, I was thinking there would be a translation that says worship the Lord. Because here's the truth. The Hebrew word in the Hebrew of the Old Testament can be translated serve or worship. And you'll find translations or verses where it can go either way. And if you think of it, that makes sense. To serve the Lord is worshiping the Lord. To worship the Lord is to serve the Lord. And when you get to the New Testament language, the Greek language, same thing. It's sometimes translated worship, sometimes service. To worship is to serve. And don't we sometimes combine that in our contemporary vocabulary? We talk about the church has its worship service, and we put both words together. You know, 1015 is our worship service. Well, you can say either one of those or both together. We're talking about Psalm 211, worship the Lord with fear, not scared in your boots, shaking, don't want to see him because he's mean and and a harsh God. No, it's the reverential fear that drives us to want to proclaim his worthiness. And combined with that, they're not exclusive, but they're combined. A joyful awe and wonder. Rejoice with trembling. We are adoring the God of amazing grace. He just is so awesome. He is awful. King James used that, awful, and it sounds bad for us to say God is awful. But think of the word as full of awe, and it makes sense. He is an awe-stricken, we are an awe-stricken people in front of this awesome God. And we rejoice because we can know him and worship him. So what a beautiful combination, reverential fear and adoring awe and joyful wonder. Now, as you know, if you've read the Old Testament, the Old Testament is full of all of these ceremonial rituals and some very strict guidelines on how the Old Testament saints worship God at the tabernacle and then the temple. They had the altar and different sacrifices. They had different festivals and holy days, the Sabbath day every week. They had the priesthood. Only the priests could offer sacrifice. The high priest was the only one who could go in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. So you had all of these externals, and it's really easy for us to think 
that in the Old Testament, God just wanted people to go through all these external motions and just push the right buttons by going to temple on the right day and giving the right sacrifice and do the right rituals and dress right and, and say the right word, and, and that's all God wants. Like religious robots is what he's pleased with. But no, in the Old Testament, even though there were all these externals, it was assumed and it was, it was directed by God that it was to come from an internal heart of love and gratitude so that it was a spiritual activity starting in the heart and then, yes, from the mouth and with the hands and all the activities and rituals would be done obediently because of a heart of praise, love, and gratitude. Sadly, the people of God then, and sometimes the people of God today, can just be satisfied with the externals. Just say the right thing, dress the right way, go to church, stand, sit, kneel, pray, sing, go home, and nothing really in the heart was moved. That's not worship. That's just religious robots. God wants a heart behind whatever outward, external, obedient acts we do. That's Old Testament. Let's take one more look at the Old Testament, then we'll jump to the New Psalm 95, if you're still in the Psalms. So if that is what worship is, what worship is, we probably have answered another question too. Why should we worship? Why is it such a big deal? Well, because of who God is and our response to Him should be. I think it's even more clear in Psalm 95. And I'd like for us to read this. I printed it out on the note sheet. If, if you want to follow that, that's the ESV. And maybe we could read that in unison as a congregation this morning. We're just going to read verses 1 down through the first part of verse 7. And so if you have your note sheet, let's just see what our voices sound like. When together we <laughs> praise God in the reading of his word. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Thank you. Isn't that a beautiful call to worship? It's right in there. Come, let us worship. But then I want you to notice, friends, that there are some parallel actions that are put alongside the call to worship. If you're coming to worship, then it will look like this, the psalmist says. You'll be doing this and this and this. And here's why. And then he'll give us some reasons. Why are we worshiping this person? Why do we worship the Lord? So maybe we could make a small list of each. What are the actions of worship? And what are the reasons why we worship our God here in Psalm 95? So tell me, let's start with the action. What do you see as an action of worship in Psalm 95? Maybe first thing, what do you see? Come. I'm sorry? Come. Come, okay. There's an action. Leave some place in order to arrive at another. 
And so there is a, 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 an assumed gathering point, we call it the church building, or here the classroom, where the congregation assembles. So come together, and then what are you going to do when you come? Sing. First thing is sing. Let us sing. Yes, and we've done that uh, a little bit today. We'll do that every worship service. At least a chorus or some kind of a spiritual song or a hymn. We sing, and God has so created us with musical uh, talents at different levels, but with everybody with a heart that appreciates music. And there's something about the soul that is that we're stirred when we hear truth in musical form. Um, if I'm sure there is a song that puts Psalm 95 to, to music. Uh, to hear it played and sung might put it into our memory and into our, our love bank and our heart deeper than if I just stand up here and I read it. Uh, there's something about singing, God says, so do it. What's another action? Yeah, yeah, okay, make a joyful noise or shout. And then at the ver end of verse 2, he repeats that, and he clarifies it. So it's not just any shout or any noise, just make a bunch of bad sound. No. What kind of shout? What kind of noise? The end of verse 2. With songs of praise. So we pump up the volume best we can. We, we uh, get our voices as clear and as on pitch as, as we're able to do. And with excellence, we're praising in a loud voice uh, our God. There's another one, uh, or a couple others maybe. What does verse 2 tell us to do? We're going to come again in verse 2, but Thanksgiving. We come as a grateful people together. And our hearts just share with one another and, and together how good God is, how much we appreciate what he's done to us to bring us through another week, to give us another beautiful day and a week ahead, to give us eternal life through our salvation in Christ, to share his blessings, some of them recounted in song, some of them we, we come in testimony time, some of them before and after conversation, just to let God know and others know how good he has been and how grateful we are Come into his presence with thanksgiving. And maybe we can get one more. And this is down in verse 6. We come. Bow down. We worship. We bow down. And then he repeats it, kneeling. Now, in the Old Testament, in the ancient, ancient Eastern world, and even today over in the Orient, uh, you have probably seen people bow down in the dust and then they put their head to the ground they get as low as they can if it's some sultan or some uh, powerful ruler they may uh, kiss his feet to show they are getting as low as possible to look up to the one that they are esteeming and showing he is worthy he's authoritative he's special uh, some churches do that they'll, they'll kneel in their service they'll have a kneeler uh, that's fine there might be a time where we kneel. It, it's a little uncomfortable. Uh, for some of us, it's a little hard. <laughs> getting up, getting down is easy for getting up. Hard floor like this. But if we were to do that, when we kneel, we are 
taking a posture, we're doing something that's uncomfortable and maybe even painful, showing you are worth this, Lord. You are worth my body going down. You are worth any pain it might put into my body. Uh, and friends, if we're not kneeling outwardly, I think the point here for us is that there's an inward attitude of kneeling. We call that submission. Lord, my body might be standing tall, but in my heart I am bowed down on my face before you. You are the one I look up to. You are the one I esteem as my high authority. And I acknowledge and recognize your majesty from down in the dust, as it were. In my heart, I'm humbly submissive to your word. Now, what, what's key, I think, and it's easy to overlook this unless you go back and you realize as I study this over and over, he's saying, O come, let us. Notice how many let us there were in there. I think I counted six, if, if I remember. Six, maybe seven. Let us. Is it, is it desirable of God for us to individually worship the Lord when we're apart from each other during the week? Absolutely. We don't confine our worship to one day, one hour when we're together. We are always to worship the Lord wherever we are, at home, at work, at the marketplace, driving our car. We are to be a continuously worshiping people. But here's the point of the psalmist. There is a time by the desire and design of God for there to be corporate worship. It's not enough for individuals. God is pleased when there is group celebration, corporate coming together for the cause of praise and adoration. I would liken it to this. Think with me on a birthday. It's your birthday and all of your friends and family shower you with congratulations. You're getting cards in the mail, uh, emails, you're getting posts on Facebook, uh, maybe a phone call or two from a long-distance friend, maybe a few friends drop off a gift at the house, and all together you've got maybe a hundred different people that have contacted you with a card, with a message, with a gift, individually. Man, doesn't that make you feel happy that you're getting old? You know, wow, bring it on, I'll keep getting old. It brings a lot of love into my life. But now you come home at the end of the day, you open the door, and surprise! Here's a hundred people packed into your home that all came together to surprise you with a corporate celebration. You know, I think, if you're like me, I think that would have a little more meaning to see everybody willing to come together some of them don't even know. They're my friends from work, my friends from church, my neighbors. They don't even know each other previously, but they all have agreed in common to come together for the singular purpose of honoring the birthday boy. You know, I think our, our Lord delights when he sees people of all different backgrounds who previously didn't know each other, and, and they're different in so many different ways, but they're all in agreement. They come together in unity for the purpose of worship. Let us come together. So corporate worship is God's will and plan for every individual worshiper to do, you know, at least once a week and whenever the congregation decides it's time for us to be together, we're going to be a part of the us crowd. Now that's what we do. Why should we do this? There's a little column of reasons. If you go back and look at the passage, why is the psalmist saying we worship 
this Lord. And when you see Lord capitalized, that's a translation of the personal name of God in the Old Testament. The Hebrew is best pronounced Yahweh. Yahweh, the I am God, the living and true God. Why do we worship him according to this psalm? Beg your pardon? He's a great God. He is a great God. Not just a good God. He is good. Not just very good. That's even better. He is great. The greatest. The great God. And by God, he means the eternal one. The only one who has no, no cause. I mean, he's the ultimate cause of everything. The source of everything. <laughs> uh, he didn't have a beginning, no end. He's the eternal I am, the great God, Jehovah, Yahweh. What else do you see in this passage as to who he is? Verse 1. All right, that's down to verse 3. The great king. Great king. King. Rock of our salvation. A king is royalty. The sovereign ruler. And what's his sovereignty over? Everything. From the top of the mountains, this psalm says, to the depths of the earth, all the way to the bottom of the sea, all the way out to the end of the Milky Way and every other galaxy. And, and the whole universe is under his throne's dominion. And he is our God to worship, this great king. And a rock. A rock-solid savior. The one who says, whoever will, let him come to me and I'll save him. Let the sinner turn from his sin and turn to the Savior on the cross who I sent to take his sin. And there will be a total forgiveness of that sin. Removal of condemnation and a placement of acceptance in my family. And that rock of our salvation is worthy of our song. Rock of our salvation. Great God. Great King. And let's not forget there's another wonderful role of God mentioned in Psalm 95. Maker. Our maker. We all owe it to him. The breath we're breathing right now is from God. The body we're living in with a heart that just pumped the last beat and the next beat, it's God who keeps that heart going, who created it, who has our days numbered, who, who knows our frame that we're just dust because he made us from Adam out of dust and Eve from his rib. And here we are saying, God, our existence, everything we, we enjoy is because you made it. And we acknowledge that in worship. So there is one passage of the Old Testament that helps us see what we want in our corporate worship. Songs of praise, times of thanksgiving, submission to his authority as expressed in his person and his word, and all because of who God is. Not because of who we are, but who he is. Now, in our closing, and we'll try and make this as quick and painless as possible, this sermon. So let's go to John 4, and I want us to at least get a little bit of Jesus' perspective on worship. Since it's his church that he's building, let's make sure... The worship is his kind of worship. John chapter 4, you know the event as the time Jesus is talking to this dear Samaritan lady at a well. And uh, to, as Jesus is talking to her, 
He's probing her life and trying to reveal her hurting, hurting, needy heart. And he touches a point in her heart. It gets a little touchy. He says, why don't you go uh, call your husband? And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus knows this. He says, yes, I know. Uh, Dear lady, you have had five husbands, and now you're living with a man who isn't your husband. And Jesus didn't beat her up with that, but he just brought out the reality of the broken relationships in her life, indicating the broken heart that wasn't satisfied by any man or any person. And she started to feel, I think, a little guilt in her conscience. Oh, he knows me. He knows I've gone through a bunch of husbands, and now I'm living unmarried with a man. Oh, uh, and as as so many of our friends may do when we're trying to witness to them the gospel, this lady tries to deflect the attention off of herself to religion. Have you ever had that with something where you're talking to them saying, have you been saved? Do you know for sure you're going to heaven one day when you die? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Uh, oh boy. Uh, you know, I go to this church or, or my father was a preacher or grandfather or I got baptized and religion will come up as an attempt to distract people from the the real issue of is their heart born again do they really have Christ in their life as their savior well this lady tried that with Jesus uh, Lord uh, or, or she didn't say Lord uh, uh, Rabbi you guys you Jews worship down in Jerusalem but here up in Samaria we worship at our temple and they had their own temple and their own worship system in Samaria and she thought maybe this would kind of get Jesus to ease off. And Jesus said, you know, dear lady, it doesn't matter. It's, it's not about the location, whether you're worshiping here or there. Today, it doesn't matter if you're worshiping in a cathedral, a building with a steeple, a classroom, or if we're at a park or at the beach or Canaan Elementary School. It's not the location that matters. I want you to pick up with me at verse 23. Now notice the change Jesus is announcing. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Notice and and maybe highlight in your mind if not on the page of scripture. Must Jesus says this is a necessity. It's not an option or one way among many. You must, as a New Testament church people, worship this way. And how is it he wants us to worship? Well, it's, first of all, who is the object of the worship? He says it several times. Who do we worship? We worship God, and then he specifically highlights the Father. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him. So we're worshiping God the Father primarily. Our worship services will be designed, and God help us always to be true to this. It's all about Him, the Father. And it will come through the Son. We'll see Him in a moment. It's not about a feel-good service for me or you. Our music and everything that we do, uh, we like coffee. Uh, that'll help people to, to develop friendship and fellowship. But we're not serving coffee or giving kids gifts or offering free food just to get people in here 
to build a crowd and get people happy and make them go home and say, you know, I really, I, I feel good about myself, or I really had a good time, I enjoyed, or it was entertaining, or I was amused. I, I hope people enjoy it, but it's not primarily for human enjoyment that we sing and that we do it. It's for the Father, that He'd be glorified, that He would be lifted up and we see Him in all of His majesty, glory, and authority. We worship the Father, Jesus says. True worshipers. That's what God is seeking. I hope He finds it in Living Hope Church, always, forever. But Jesus goes on to give us some specifics. How can we worship the Father? How does a healthy church worship the Father? In what two ways? What two means? Spirit? And truth, good. Spirit, and it's, in my translation, a small s on spirit, probably meaning to the, the internal heart of man. Again, we're not just outward robots going through external actions, uh, you know, very ritualistically, robotically. It's from within. Our heart wants to love the Lord, adore him. Uh, our body wants to stay in bed on Sunday morning, but our heart wins the battle. It says, come on, old flesh. My heart can't stay away from this great God, this great king, and his people. I've got to go and worship the God who's in my heart. My heart beats for him. So in spirit, we're, we're, uh, there might be mornings we come in here tired. There might be mornings we come in here a little beat up from the, the world. Uh, we're a little down doesn't mean we're always in the top of our game. We're A1, perfectly holy in our heart. No, I, I've got some emotions sometimes. I come in, but the primary mover of my heart is I've got to worship God. He'll make my heart better. He'll fix what's wrong. He'll get me back where I need to be. Worship in spirit and worship in truth. Truth, probably... Um, a reference to what God reveals, and we would call that the truth of his word, scripture. So obviously our worship, if it's healthy, is lining up with scripture. We're not going to do anything that scripture does not command us to or allow us to do as God's people. We want it to be true to the word. But maybe we could also say truth there is true to reality. It's not phony. It's not a bunch of Christians plastering their face with a smile, dressing nice, singing loud, acting happy. But in our hearts, I'm thinking about what I'm doing this week, and I can't hardly wait to get out of here so I can get home and watch the ball game or go to the beach. My heart's not in it, but I'm here. You know, that is not truth. That's hypocritical worship. So I want to be a genuine, heartfelt truthful worshiper of the Father. Friends, can I suggest something? When you look at spirit and truth, it might even be Jesus is speaking at a little higher level. If we were to capitalize spirit, it might bring it out in our minds a little clearer. If we're worshiping in spirit, capital S, that would mean we are worshiping empowered, led, energized by the spirit the Holy Spirit, who's in our spirit, who's in within us. And I think that's how John has used spirit earlier in, 
his gospel. Remember in John chapter 3, he told Nicodemus, except a man be born of the Spirit. And he talked about there's flesh and there's spirit. And spirit birth, the Holy Spirit working in the heart, is what makes you a child of God to start with. And I think there might be some indication here. Jesus is saying, a healthy worshiper is one who is spirit-born and spirit-filled. And it's not just a lot of human energy being pumped up. It's God's spirit moving the heart. And the same with the word truth. Oh, and here's another reference in your notes. Chapter 7, Jesus will say, the spirit flows in the human heart like a stream of living water. He keeps flowing, refreshing, sustaining, nourishing, cold, living water, just like a well in the middle of a desert. Now, word truth, um, somebody in the Bible said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Who said that? <laughs> John 14, 6, a little later in the gospel, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. John opened his gospel in the prologue in chapter 1 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I say, when Jesus is telling us how to be a true, healthy, worshiping church, he's saying, worship in spirit and truth. Worship the Father by the Holy Spirit energizing you with the truth, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, as your channel, your, your way to the Father. So we see, I think, the Trinity all involved in our worship. We worship the Father through the Son, who's the truth, by the Holy Spirit. So here's my conclusion to us this morning. Based on what we see, what worship is, and how it looks, and then from Jesus' words, what true worship the Father desires, could we make this our, our commitment statement on worship as a, as a new to be newly birthed church, to always be a healthy, worshiping church, that we could say this. A healthy, living hope church will be an assembly. We've got to come together, a congregation, maybe only three or four at times, but maybe we'll get 100 or 300, however many number. We're an assembly of God's redeemed people. He's the rock of our salvation. Saved people gathering. With occasionally unsafe friends coming, they're welcome. Come on in, see what the family is like. Uh, we're not keeping outsiders out. Outsiders come in and be a part of the family. But we are a family of redeemed people that worships the Father through His Son, whose name is Jesus, and His Son's Word, which is the Scripture, that's the truth, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the means of, and here's what we do, I think we did this this morning. Joyful singing, thankful praising and praying, and humble submission to his word. We bow the knee, we submit ourselves to his rule, to his revelation, to his word. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.